Before the events of the past couple of weeks and months, a conventional war between states in Europe seemed to be a matter only seen in the history books. Now as we stand, the Russian government has launched an invasion of Ukraine in the face of fierce Ukraine resistance, sparking total war within the country as Europe faces the largest refugee crisis since World War II. To cover this momentous event, the Global Current has convened a special panel to cover the recent events. From Seen Hall University at the School of Diplomacy and International Relations, this is The Global Current. I'm your host, Drew Starbuck. With me today are two special guest panelists, Dr. Joseph Huddleston, an assistant professor for the School of Diplomacy that specializes in diplomacy by rebel groups, dynamics in interstate conflict, and research design, with a current focus on separatist and secessionist movements and how international actors hinder or help these movements gain diplomatic recognition. We also have Dr. Knight, a professor of history and department chair of the Department of History at Seton Hall, who has focused his research on Russia, including important concepts today, such as Russian conceptions of nation, ethnography, and imperialism. He has also lived in Russia for several years in the 1990s and has traveled back and forth frequently ever since. Thank you guys for both coming up on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. All right, gentlemen, just to get into the questions first, I think I'll start with I'd like to get both of your quick takes on the origins of this conflict. My sense is that the, the conflict really has its immediate origins in Vladimir Putin's understanding of the Russia and its relations to the former countries of the Soviet Union and a kind of imperial legacy that he sees, sees himself as the bearer of continuing. Uh, essentially, uh, after the Soviet Union broke up and Putin came to power, Putin envisioned a situation in which uh, Ukraine would be governed by a, an allied, essentially subservient government, probably a corrupt government that would follow Moscow's lead. He had such a government from uh, you know, the time he started in, in power in 2000, in 2000 with Leonid Kuchma, but in 2004, his vision was thrown off course with the Orange Revolution, and it's been problematic ever since. He had in place a subservient leader from 2010 to 2014, but that, that leader was overthrown in the Maidan Revolution of Dignity in 2014. And uh, so he's this vision he has of what Ukraine should be has been thwarted, and he cannot reconcile himself to this notion. Yeah, I, I would point to, by the way, very, very happy to be sharing this with Dr. Knight here, who has much more in-depth knowledge on Russian politics than I do. I'm a sort of more general security scholar. So therefore, I'd like to talk about a couple of things from how we understand international security relations. And I think there's sort of three big lessons from political science to sort of point out here. The first is this one that probably most of your listeners are aware of, the security dilemma, where whenever you have a neighboring country that's building up its military, that country's neighbors are going to feel threatened by that, even if it's intended for bolstering defensive capabilities, which I think is pretty clear in, in Ukraine's case. It still just appears threatening. So even even though it's very hard to treat Russia as a good faith actor when it talks about its security concerns. Some of the security concerns we actually should take very seriously, right? There is a historical rivalry between Russia and NATO. 
that has some some real roots. And the Russian government sees that Ukraine is drifting away from its influence. So a second one, a second point to, to really focus on are that there's three norms that are being all violated at the same time here. That of sovereignty, that of territorial integrity, and that of political independence as part of sovereignty. These have been in place since the end of World War II. The foundation of the UN incorporated all these concepts. And this is the first major conflict that really is a clear violation of all three parts in a, in a way that's just not really precedented, at least, well, it's always a risk to say something's unprecedented, but, but very, very unusual. And then finally, this shows us the lesson that individual leaders in small authoritarian regimes with a very tight elite group, they just have a certain element of chaos. You know, if you have an individual leader with uh, with their own personal agenda or ambition, it's really difficult to check that. And it can make for chaotic events like this. Right. So I think all of these kind of come into play for trying to understand the origins of this conflict. I think you make some good points, Professor Huddleston, and I think we'll get to some of those later on. But I want to draw back to what you said about the military buildup and the aggression of the Russians acting as not a good faith actor. Do you both see any parallels between this conflict and what happened in Crimea in 2014 or even previous Russian engagements in Georgia and Chechnya? Do you want to? Yeah, sure. So. I think that something that Dr. Knight's already talked about is that there's this imperial agenda that's very, very much on the forefront of Putin's decision making strategies in foreign affairs. And what happened in Georgia, what happened in Chechnya, Crimea, they all fit this sort of narrative that the Russian state fell, it shrunk, it became weak, right? And now we want to restore it to its formal glory, right? And to sort of chip away at the boundaries that sort were settled by the collapse of the USSR, right? Like this is just continuing that path Putin government has had at its forefront for a while. Yeah. One other thing too, it's also continuing is this pattern of the frozen conflicts, which is something we've seen since the breakup of the Soviet Union, where uh, these Actually, it's kind of a legacy of uh, Joseph Stalin, because Stalin had a habit when he drew the borders of the various Soviet republics of including non-majority ethnic groups in those mm -hmm. borders. And these non-majority regions have, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, become the, the focal point of various separate movements, whether it's the Transnistria in, in Moldova or Abkhazia in Georgia or South Ossetia. And so what Putin has done in Donetsk and Luhansk is kind of create this type of scenario, but in a little bit of a, a different conflict, a context, a context of a much more active struggle. And he's used this as a pretext for the start of this war, it's very clear that the actual motive is not the situation in Donetsk, mm -hmm. Lugansk, but he's used it for his propaganda purposes to say that there has been an ongoing genocide, ongoing repression in these areas. And um, what you've seen basically in Donetsk and Lugansk since 2014, well, there was active fighting there 2014 
2015, some quite horrific uh, events. And the, the, the people who took over there, who largely came from Russia with a certain degree of local support, were really unsavory characters, very bad actors. And there are just horrific stories about the, the arrests, the, the, you know, people being detained for long periods of time without any recourse to, to justice, torture chambers, uh, people even, t- even talked about concentration camps of sorts in these areas. It's been a really horrific situation. Meanwhile, people living in this area have gone on with their lives as best they can, and there's been a kind of static front with intermittent intermittent shelling back and forth across the front, but no major advances since 2015 on, on either side. Interesting questions why Putin has decided at this particular moment in time to, um, to, to break this kind of stalemate and, and use this as pretext for an all-out assault on, on Ukraine. And I don't know, maybe that's an, an issue we can come back to later in the discussion. I, I actually think that's right where we want to go, Dr. Knight, in that of launching the invasion now and starting what was a frozen conflict into an all-out war. I wanted to ask you both of what do you think Russia, specifically Putin, wants to accomplish in Ukraine and his motivation for launching this war at this point in time? Is it all-out annexation? Is it installing a friendly government? What is what is his goal here? Yeah, I, I think that if Putin could completely have his way and there were no checks from other countries or from the UN or anywhere else, that annexation would be great, right, to have direct control over the government centralized control. However, that has not been the sort of model of Russia since the end of the Cold War. The model has been supporting these governments that are subservient, right, like Lukashenko's government in Belarus, like Yanukovych's former government in Ukraine, right, these governments that more or less answer to the Kremlin, right, and, you know, allow for, for example, what Belarus is allowing which is the Russian military staging everything within their borders, right? So that it's kind of hard to tell the difference between what an independent Belarus would look like and what what a Belarus would look like if it actually were under the direct control, right? So I think the aim is to get Ukraine back in that position. Yeah, I I would agree with that. And I think it's actually interesting to look at what uh, Putin has actually said his goals are. Um, He's used two words. One word is demilitarization. The other word is denazification. And everyone is really scratching their heads like, what are these Nazis? What's he talking about? You know, what could this possibly mean? But I think that it's pretty clear that the people who he is referring to as Nazis are uh, essentially the, um, the leadership of Ukraine, both the, the political leadership, the cultural leadership, the intellectual leadership, the people in Ukraine who are espousing the notion of Ukrainian independence, Ukrainian sovereignty, and Ukrainian affiliation with the West. And in Russian propaganda going back to 2014, there's a long history to this, this sort of Nazi allegation, but the Ukrainian independence movement has been sort of plastered with this tag of, of Nazis and Nazism. So essentially, it would seem that his, his goal is really to kind of decapitate the leadership of, of Ukraine. What happens after that, I think in his mind, probably depended on contingencies. I agree that the question of, of annexation has been on the table. There have been some interesting little 
hints where this is kind of, uh, you know, leaked out in various ways in the discussions, both immediately before the war and, and as soon as it got going. But, but uh, a puppet government would also be an, an option as well. And of course, the elimination of Ukraine's military capacity to pose any threat to Russia, I agree, is, a, is an important security issue. But can, can I, do, you, do you mind? I just want to add this request of sort of demilitarization. It's one of the most ridiculous policies on its face, right? Every every country, except a very spare few, has a military that is prepared to defend itself, that strikes up alliances with whomever it wants. It's part of being sovereign, right, mm-hmm. is the ability to to formulate that kind of foreign policy. So to resist to go against that. Right. This is part of why this is such a like norm defying sort of position that the Russian government has. Yeah, I, I, I thought about it. I tried to think back, like, when has there been a historical case where a state has been forcibly demilitarized? And the only thing that came to my mind is Germany after the Versailles Treaty, after World War One, and possibly Japan after yeah. World War II. Um, but in these cases, these became kind of voluntary attributes that these countries embraced, and they were accompanied, at least certainly with Japan, accompanied by security guarantees uh, mm-hmm. in the form of alliances. So I agree. I mean, simply asking Ukraine to to give up its military and refrain from any alliances with no guarantees in return is is um, just un- unthinkable. In modern times. On that point of Ukrainian nationhood again, sovereignty has a lot of points you made earlier on the absurdness of Putin's policies and proclaiming the leadership of the Ukrainian government is neo-Nazi-like. Can you give us some insight? I'll come to you first, Dr. Knight, on specifically on Ukrainian nationhood. And also with the Nazi claims of the Ukrainian leadership, I'd also like you to talk about specifically how much role ethnicity plays in this conflict of Putin's claims that he's protecting ethnic Russians in eastern and southern Ukraine, if you would mind giving more details on that. Yeah, this is this is an interesting question, of course, for a huge question. The first point I would make is that contrary to what Putin has been saying Putin uh, Ukraine is a separate nation Ukraine is a separate ethnicity Ukrainian language is different from Russia it's it's related to Russian so like as a a fluent Russian speaker I can understand maybe 50 60 percent of spoken Ukrainian and maybe a little bit more written Ukrainian but it is a it it is very much a, a a separate language and Ukraine has a separate historical trajectory although there are points of intersection with Russian but there are also large points of of separation with Russia so that's that's the first first thing I would make I would also, but I would disagree with the framing of this conflict as an ethnic conflict. Um, there have been some very uh, fundamental changes in the nature of Ukrainian national consciousness since 2014. And these things can change very quickly. What you saw leading up to 2014 was a fairly stronger, strong sense of a division between the uh, strongly Ukrainian parts of Ukraine, mainly Western Ukraine, and the more Russian-oriented parts of Ukraine, Eastern Ukraine, where the uh, native Russian speakers are a stronger presence. And you saw this in the electoral results, for example, in 2010, where um, the Western part of Ukraine went very strongly for the pro-Western candidate, Yuli Tymoshenko, and the Eastern part went with Viktor Yanukovych, the pro-Russian candidate. That's all changed now. 
uh, really interesting to look at the electoral results in 2019 when uh, Zelensky was elected. And there you see his support was actually strongest in eastern Ukraine. And you see that the the Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine have very strongly begun to identify with the Ukrainian state, with Ukrainian nationhood and, and in opposition to Russia. And, you know, the areas that are being hardest hit right now, you know, Kharkov and uh, Sumy and the area around mm-hmm. Kiev, these are the this is the the Russian speaking kind of heartland of Ukraine. And so it's not a matter of who's who's a native Russian speaker, who's a Ukrainian speaker. It's a matter of defending Ukrainian sovereign, Ukrainian nationhood. So I think it's a kind of classic example of the formation of a sort of what's often referred to as uh, civic nationalism. Nationalism is identified with citizenship in the state rather than a particular dominant ethnicity. Yeah, and, it, and evidence of this, too, is how th- there's not a big disparity with how much resistance you're seeing among Ukrainian speakers and Russian speakers in Ukraine. You know, these Eastern Russian-speaking cities have the same level of resistance to the Russian invasion. So you really have Russian speakers fighting other Russian speakers, right, as a sort of, outpouring or manifestation of this civic nationalism and it just it's kind of a useful lesson for for everyone that you can't predict the boundaries of nation just by looking at language and ethnicity right it can really it can be really be defined in other ways i see just to go off that point i think i think it's an important point of like the notion of ukraine defending itself and the citizens both ukrainian speaking and russian speaking uh, are fiercely resisting the Russian invasion. So going into that, do you think Putin believed in his own propaganda or overestimated the amount of resistance he was going to get, especially from the Russian-speaking population? Yeah, I, I, I do think that the narrative that Putin put forth and the narrative that has been presented to the Russian people is very much a kind of ethnically-based narrative, a narrative of the, the this oppression of Russian speakers in Ukraine and these Nazis. And of course, there, there were some extreme right elements, particularly coming out of 2014, who were very convenient to Russian propaganda. They, they provided, the, you know, the, the video clips, the, the, the symbols, the images of of this kind of extreme right wing Ukraine. They only represent a very tiny minority of the overall Ukrainian population, and it's become smaller since 2014. But this narrative has stuck, and I think it's stuck in Putin's mind, and and it's been the, the core of the Russian propaganda. The problem is now there's this incredible rift between what the Russian people are being told in this narrative and the reality on the ground, which is being harder, becoming harder and harder to conceive. So it's the state of kind of extreme cognitive dissonance. And that's why you see Russia uh, just really ruthlessly shutting off all external sources of information um, over the past week. You know, um, all foreign websites have been blocked. All of the independent news media in Russia, you know, TV station Rain. Echo Moskvi, um, these are the, they, they've all been, been shut down. Um, and now they have this insane draconian law that spreading any information that contradicts the official version of what's going on in Ukraine can be punished by up to 15 years in jail. It's, I mean, you didn't see that sort of stuff even during Stalin's rule. And I think these are all signs of this futile attempt to shore up this kind of wall of disinformation against the reality of what's actually happening in Ukraine and to hold off this cognitive dissonance. 
and uh, I don't think it's working very well. Well, and, and ultimately, you can't hide thousands of lost soldiers, right? There's no amount of disinformation that you can give to the mothers and fathers of missing young men, right? So the rift, the rift goes even deeper, right? Mm-hmm. And and one way or another, the the sort of fruits of the reality are going to get through yeah. this wall, this wall of of disinformation. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The one thing that's being talked about in the Russian media now is the question of, of whether whether the ordinary conscripted soldiers are serving in Ukraine or whether it's only the professional contract soldiers. And they're having to admit now, even in the official media, that some of the conscripted soldiers actually are serving because these videos of the prisoners of war are coming out and also uh, news about about casualties and that the casualty rate is extremely high. We don't know the exact number, but yeah, they they can't not talk about this and it's it's creating problems. I was just going to come back to the sort of first part of the question about, you know, did did Russia, did Putin get underestimate what was going to happen? You know, it's hard to sort of peer into that regime, but it's pretty clear just from the way this conflict is proceeding that what they estimated would happen was wrong. Like they didn't have enough fuel or food for this invasion. Right. They 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 the, the plan on the ground, the logistical problems they're running into are problems that come from a sort of unexpected response from the Ukrainian people. Right. So. And I would add, Putin seems to have drawn the wrong lessons from responses to earlier conflicts like Georgia, Chechnya, Crimea, right? It, it, it seems like the assumption was the West will not really care that much and there won't really be a strong reaction, right? Instead, what he's, what he's done is compromised his own security concerns for Russia by uniting NATO for one of the strongest sort of episodes of NATO unity we've seen in a while and convinced European governments like Poland and Switzerland and Germany to change their historic policies, right? Germany like 20 tupled its defense budget as a result of this event unfolding. So that is not something that you would have heard Putin say he wants to happen to his West, right? Yeah. And if I could jump in, uh, uh, I think he he also gravely misunderstood the state of Ukraine and the resistance of the Ukrainian people. And I think he he thought he would be fighting the Ukrainian army of 2014, which was in pretty pitiful shape. And I think he uh, really seriously underestimated the extent to which the Ukrainian army has modernized, improved its its training, improved its resources. And it, it is an entirely different fighting force now. And he also, um, I think, gravely misrepresented the resolve of the Ukrainian people. You know, I think one of the things about Russian propaganda is that they te- it tends to very much downplay the the nature of human agency, the idea that people can actually believe things and people can can stand up for their beliefs and fight for their beliefs, though there tends to be a kind of cynical worldview that people are simply in it for their material interests can be easily bought off. I think the Russians have probably attempted to buy off people in the Ukrainian military, buy off Western politicians, and it didn't work. <laughs> and, it's a, you know, this and, and what, what is motivating people now is um patriotism, loyalty. And I think that that, you know, goes with the I think for for 
pe- the people in this propaganda mindset, people who believe in ideas and will fight for those ideas are fanatics, Nazis, you know, and that sort of stems with it, with this, this notion. Um, so, so yes, great, gravely mis, uh, underestimated what he would be up against. I see on the, on the point of the resistance, both in Ukraine, Putin underestimating and the response from the West, NATO and the West is united in the fact that they will not at the moment, it seems they will not install a no-fly zone on Ukraine. They will not militarily intervene in the conflict, but they're willing to send as much economic aid and weapons support. You mentioned Poland, Dr. Huddleston. I know they're trying to send in – they offered to send all their fighter jets to the United States to supply to Ukraine to contest the airspace. But they are also willing to install severe economic sanctions on Putin and the Russian government. Do you think these sanctions will be painful enough to cause Putin to change course? I think that the only way we can, the only route to a change from the sanctions is going to be from internal pressure, right? Which is precisely the idea, right? But I, I don't, I don't think it will be the, the government in place, Vladimir Putin's government saying, oh no, we're paying a price for this as the country. Therefore, we need to change course. I think it will, it will instead go through, you know, building pressure within Russian politics. That eventually makes it so that someone doesn't have a choice, right? Either Putin doesn't have a choice or those around him who support his leadership start withdrawing their support. Now, I don't know nearly enough about Russian politics to comment very much further than that, right? But it's very clear that there just, you know, there is a division in a, a rift, as Dr. Knight said earlier, in Russian society about this, even with the, dis, the disinformation in place. There are a lot of people who are going against the official framing and are trying to to uh, are getting out in the streets and protesting what the Russian state's doing. Right. So we'll we'll have to watch and see where that goes. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it really is a, a combination of forces uh, that, that will ultimately have an impact on this situation. I think it's it's um, important to emphasize just how unprecedented these sanctions are. I mean, nothing like this has ever been done before. I mean, this is essentially economic total war. And I don't think we've ever seen a, a country and an economy that has been so fully and so completely isolated from the world economic system. Uh, system. And particularly in this era of globalization, you know, like we saw the supply chain problems we began having when things start to break down with. And, you know, imagine what this is like for Russia, where, you know, none of the parts to their technology can be serviced. Their their airplane fleet is going to be, in, including their air internal flights, are going to be uh, grounded because they can't get the parts because no one will, will service them. Their their hard currency reserves have become inaccessible. So their very their ability to defend their currency by using hard currency is is gone. And in fact, even the ability to use their hard currency reserves, which are quite substantial, to fund the continuing continuing military effort is, is uh, has been taken away from them. So they really are facing um, just total uh, bankruptcy. Uh, and, and add to that the social effects, you know, mass unemployment. I mean, what does it mean when, when McDonald's closes down in Russia? Well, they have eight, 800 stores, each store, probably hundreds of workers. That's a lot of social 
dislocation, not to mention people not being able to take cash out of the ATMs it's a, uh, or people who have uh, savings in hard currency not being able to access those savings. I mean, it really is unprecedented. Add to that the continuing Ukrainian resistance. This is why the, Ukraine, the Ukrainian struggle is so important, because to the extent that they can keep up the resistance, that the, the cities don't fall to the Russians, that this is a continuing struggle every day that they continue on in increases the pressure pressure on Putin's government. And I think we're already seeing some signs that elements within the elite, possibly Putin himself, are looking for possible ways out. Um, The negotiating demands have have begun to kind of moderate slightly. They're not talking Mm -hmm. about denazification anymore, even demilitarization in the latest statement from the the, um, Russian State Department, uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, wasn't wasn't there. Uh, what they're talking about basically is some kind of guarantee of Ukrainian neutrality, which is not necessarily demilitarization, and recognition of the annexation of Crimea uh, and these two breakaway republics. So, um, so they you know they may be moving towards some kind of attempt at a negotiated settlement. If they don't, uh, I agree that the pressure, particularly on the Russian elites, will become really intense. You know, the oligarchs, the the people in parliament who are solidly behind Putin, but they're really the only people who can actually speak really freely now. Uh, no one else can't. I don't think this will come from masses on the street because cruelty and fierceness of the mm-hmm. oppression where they... they but I think um, pressure within the security apparatus, with, within mm-hmm. is, is um, I don't policemen don't like to be the enforcers of police state, and their and their bosses don't don't necessarily either. And uh, so I think it will be this cumulative pressure building up. I think we're already seeing that might lead to some kind of break. And when military adventures in Russia collapse historically, it doesn't end well for mm-hmm. the I mean, we see that going all the way back to, you know, the Crimean War in the mid 19th century, the Russo-Japanese War, uh, the, the Finnish War in uh, Winter War with Finland, uh, the Afghanistan adventure in, you know, military defeats tends to be uh, the, the prelude to political crises and regime change. On on the point, you mentioned the conditions earlier. Do you think uh, if there if the Ukrainians decide to recognize the annexation of Crimea to Russia and the two republics, is there a way out for Putin to spin this as a victory to peacefully resolve this conflict? Because it seems that if he's going to find a way out peacefully, he has to make it a victory uh, to use it to uh, to uphold his regime and the propaganda. Is there a way for him to do that? I think that. There's definitely a way to frame it as a win for him. And I'm sure that that's what we if if these negotiations do well, if Russia has decided it's failing. Right. Which kind of like like Dr. Knight has said a few times, we're seeing signs that of even Putin himself are kind of saying, like, well, this is not going as planned. Right. I think that it will frame its frame, whatever situation it gets as a win. I also think there's reason to believe that the Ukrainian government will negotiate as well. Right. It's it's looking at complete calamity and cataclysm within its boundaries, right? So no matter what Western powers are doing with sanctions, right, the immediate situation is still a, you know, a large military, albeit disorganized, right, advancing on its capital and destroying so much of the infrastructure 
um, within the country. So I think that, and you know, to be honest, there's an argument to be made that whatever happens, right, we should sort of all incur, if it is a negotiated solution between Ukraine and Russia, we should all frame that as a win, right? This conflict has potential to go off the rails in ways that we have not seen in many generations, right? So if, if that is the outcome we see, um, I will, I will be breathing some deep sighs of relief. Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, I think the, the priority now is just to, you know, stop the destruction, stop the fighting. And, uh, and, and we are really on the, on the edge of a precipice and it, it could get much, much worse. And, and so yes, it would be, it would be very, it would be infuriating to allow Putin to walk away from this and to walk away from the destruction and remain in power and, and to con- continue his repressive regime in Russia. And, and to, to legitimize the, the seizure of Crimea also. But, it, you know, if that's the price that Ukraine has to pay for, for peace, there, there may not be a choice. And I think Zelensky now has a kind of the height of moral authority, I think, with his, the leadership he's provided. And I think he's in a position, if anyone is, to kind of sell this to mm-hmm. the Ukrainian people because this this will this pill will not go down well if they have to make concessions but again if this what it is what it takes it uh, it may be necessary on that on that point guys since we have around five minutes left and in the interest of time to kind of summarize and go over all that we've covered so far where do you see this conflict going and do you have any final thoughts on whether it be the repercussions for russia ukraine or even nato and the european union of where where do you see this conflict going? Well, to kind of just go right right off of what Dr. Nietzsche said, you know, if these talks yield some kind of negotiated outcome, I think it'll look like some kind of devil's bargain. It might be EU membership, but neutrality concerning NATO, some kind of loss of territory, Crimea, recognition of these two republics, that might be a version of it. Definitely, I, I think regime change within Ukraine obviously is off the table for the Ukrainian government. So it's, but it's, you know, negotiated settlements always dissatisfy everybody, right? Like that's, that's just kind of a fact of, of ending a conflict before there's a complete outright victor. And if the negotiations continue to fail, we're looking at a very ugly, nasty, protracted conflict there. We're talking occupation that's expensive for Russia, that's deadly for Ukraine. Um, we might be talking about insurgency of major refugee crisis. There's already two million refugees, right? Scale it up to 10, right? That could be something that comes, that comes out um, that ends in a frozen conflict, right? That's just a source of instability in Eastern Europe uh, indefinitely, right? So, and not to mention, no matter what happens, we're seeing important international norms that have been sort of trampled on and what kind of lessons will be drawn from by other by other countries is going to be an open question. Right. So it's kind of lose lose <laughs> at this point, but some losses are much more devastating than others. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good summary of, of the prospects. Uh, I think the, the, the idea of uh, continuing war is becoming less and less palatable to the, the Russian government. It, it was interesting in the statement out 
today from the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, they specifically disavowed the idea that their war aim was to change the government in Ukraine. And there was another statement from a Russian official, official figure, I don't remember who, acknowledging that Zelensky is the legitimate leader of, of Ukraine. So there seems to be a backing away from that. If and if there is a negotiated settlement, I think this will leave NATO and the European countries in a position of unity and consolidation, which they really haven't been in, at least since the end of the Cold War. What they do with this unity is another matter, whether it will fritter away in peacetime. But it certainly is an opportunity to envision a kind of new new framework of Europe. I think it also, um, I would hope, takes the wind out of the sails of some of the authoritarian movements that have been growing in Europe, uh, Poland and Hungary, for example, and, and brings them a little bit more back into the European fold. I mean, essentially, we are fighting for democracy and countries that are that are uh, moving in an authoritarian, anti-democratic direction are um, on the wrong side of history. On this one, it will leave uh, Russia, uh, Putin, I think, a much weakened figure in Russia. And the question is whether it'll still feel the need to tight, you know, keep the bolts tight on Russian society or whether there'll be a loosen, loosening up. I think a good chance there will be a loosening up because the Russian, you know, people are I mean, they've had they've had 20, 30 years of ability to travel abroad. Western style education, a much more open society. It's not they're not going to agree to go back to Soviet style repression anytime soon. Well, I just want to thank you both for coming on. Uh, that is I think we've had a really good discussion on the implications and what could go on in this conflict if it goes on much further or however long it decides to go on. So I want to thank you both so much for coming on today. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Uh, this is the Global Current signing off, and we'll see you on the waves on 8.30 a.m. on Sunday on WSOU. Thank you so much for coming on, guys. Thank you.